tales of horror. As the sleepless hours tick past, brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. As we near the end of September, you know what that means. We're about to enter the Halloween month of October. We're excited about all the fun stuff we have in store for you. Each episode during October will feature a Halloween story or two as we ramp up to the big day. We'll have our famous Season Pass Halloween bonus episode coming out, so make sure you sign up for Season Pass 15. And we'll have some live streams and other tricks to treat you with. This would be the perfect time to make sure you're following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, so you're up to date on all the ghoulish things we're doing. We are at No Sleep Podcast on all those platforms. We can't wait to celebrate the month of love. No, wait, wait. Horror, not love. Terror, chills, thrills, not love and marriage and devotion and all that mushy stuff. (laughs) Oh, this pandemic is getting to me. And since we're a year-round horror show, I'd say we don't need to wait for October. In fact, now, let's begin our journey down this lost highway. In our first tale, we join a medical professional with a reputation for being kind, friendly, and excellent at his job. His staff admire him, his patients love him, and he brings true hope to the lives he saves. But in this tale, shared with us by author Colin B. Randall, we discover that all the bedside manner in the world can't save you from vengeance. I join Peter Lewis, Mike Delgadio, Alexis Bristow, Danielle McRae, Atticus Jackson, Nicole Doolin, Dan Zapula, and Sarah Thomas in performing this tale. So put on your white coat and grab your stethoscope, prep the thermometers and sharpen the scalpels, because we're about to go under with Dr. Tanner and the virtue of patience. Soft drips from an IV, subtle and unnatural blue-white light, quiet beeps and churns, background humming from the air conditioner. An old man, Jenkins Powell, lay on the bed in and out of consciousness. The door opened. Beatrice, a nurse, came in with a food cart to see if Mr. Powell would be able to eat with assistance today. Dr. Tyler Tanner followed behind her. Good evening, Mr. Powell. I see you're awake tonight. Do you want me to change the channel? Scary movie got you riled up, huh? 
Mr. Powell was as sharp as a tack when he wasn't nearly comatose. Oh, oh, no, no, no. I I thought, you know, Dr. Tanner is going to want to talk to me tonight. I can't be rude. Tyler and Beatrice both chuckled (laughs) as she got his food set up. Beatrice slid the tray out and sat Mr. Powell up. Do you think you can eat tonight, Jenkins? Uh, of, of course, of course. I'm starving. Say, B, when are you going to take me up on my offer to come over? We'll put on some old jazz records, and I'll whip you up something much better than this garbage they pass off as food here. The nurse giggled and continued to get his dinner cut down into bite-sized pieces. While Dr. Tanner finished checking all the gauges and machines, Beatrice started feeding Mr. Powell. When you get out of here, I may just have to take you up on that offer. Dr. Tanner finished making his notes on Jenkins' chart. Okay, Mr. Powell, everything looks good for now, stable and improving. I'll be back in the morning, but B will be back later this evening. I'm glad I got to see you tonight. Mr. Powell turned his attention from dinner. Hey, I'm glad you got to see me too. Evening, Doc. Tyler continued on to his next patient, a middle-aged father of three, Guillermo Ramirez. He slowly sat up to talk with Dr. Tanner. Dr. T, what's good? Dr. Tanner inspected Guillermo's recent surgery sutures. Evening, Mo. How'd we do today? More pain? Less? Anything new? Arm up, please. Well, a little less pain. Nothing new I can think of. It was easier to walk into the bathroom today than it has been. Dr. Tanner put Guillermo's arm back down. All right, that's awesome. Day by day, it'll get easier. Just keep up what you're doing. You'll be back home in no time with your wife and kids. He checked Mr. Ramirez's vitals and recorded everything in his journal. Guillermo was looking at his scars and flexing his hands while he spoke. That's great, Dr. T. My youngest is starting junior high in a few weeks. I promised I'd be there the first day of school. Tyler closed his book and looked up at Guillermo. Then let's keep it up with the recovery so you can keep your promise. Work a little harder with rehab and you never know. You may be out of here by next weekend. The job was taxing at times, the days long, but it was worth it. Tyler liked helping others and had taken naturally to medicine since first starting pre-med classes. At the end of the hallway, tucked away in the corner, was Ida Vale. At one point, she had been a promising young starlet... That was decades ago, and now this miserable old woman sat alone. Not quite a has-been, but at least not a never-was. Tyler's last stop for the night. Good evening, Miss Vale. I talked to Nurse B. She said you were spitting your food out at her again. Ida's mouth scowled as she spoke, not even bothering to look at the doctor. It was bland, and the service here is dreadful. I'd rather be dead than have to spend another minute here under any circumstance. Tyler felt sorry for her. 
She had most of the staff against her and probably silently hoping she'd sooner pass than have to treat her, but Dr. Tanner pitied her. Regardless of how she acted, he showed compassion. He truly cared about his patients. Ida, I know you're secretly joking right now, but you need to act a little nicer to the nursing staff. I know you've heard the expression, you can catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. That's great and all, but I don't give a rat's ass about flies. And I suspect you'd catch even more than honey with all that bullshit. Dr. Tanner restrained himself from laughing lest he upset her any further. I apologize, Miss Vale. Please let me or any of the nurses here know if you need anything. He finished marking her vitals in her charts. I need to know which plug to pull on this thing. Good night, Ida. The door was almost shut as Dr. Tanner put his hand on it to stop it abruptly. And if you mess with your cords again, I will have to order restraints. They will be checking on you this evening, Miss Vale. Tyler looked at his watch. It was time to leave. Go for... Tyler shut the door before she could finish. Dr. Tanner parked in his driveway and walked in his house. He put his keys in their place, put his pajama suit on, his dirty clothes in the hamper, and could lay down for almost a full night's sleep before he'd be due back at the hospital. Some nights he found no rest, but tonight he could sleep soundly. His head hit the pillow. He turned and adjusted his arms to get comfortable, glanced at the clock, and shut his eyes. Tyler's alarm was going off. He groggily reached over to hit the snooze button. He must have missed it. The alarm was still going off. Tyler pushed his hand down a few more times to no avail. He sat up in a flash. His phone was ringing. He looked at the clock. He'd only been asleep for about two hours. Dr. Tanner. Tyler, Mr. Ramirez died in his sleep. Tyler was more awake now. He immediately started going through everything in his head. He had checked everything himself before he left, and Mr. Ramirez had no complications nor other major concerns. Just make sure they get him down to the morgue. I'll come in early and finish handling everything. There any clues as to what happened? Tyler was still trying to wrap his head around what could have possibly gone wrong. It had been years since he had lost a patient. The only one. Nora Mullins. That's what I was about to say, sir. There's something you need to see. Right now. In person. Tyler could sense the trepidation in her voice. Beatrice wouldn't make such a suggestion if there wasn't an issue of some serious concern. I'll be there in 15 minutes. The hospital was foreboding in the dark night sky as Dr. Tanner arrived. He rushed inside and to the elevator. He practically jumped out before the doors had fully opened. He found B in the morgue. She was standing over the body, staring. B, what's wrong? What did I need to see? He saw something off about Mr. Ramirez's skin at certain points. What's that on his skin, Beatrice? She stood still for a moment, then grabbed the blanket and exposed more of his foot. Tyler's face contorted. He wasn't sure what he was looking at. It it looked almost like a handprint. 
What on earth? Tyler put on his gloves and inspected closer. That's not the only thing. Nurse B rolled Mr. Ramirez on his stomach. There were five large scratches down his back. They stood silent for what seemed like hours. Dr. Tanner's stomach was in knots. Was anyone else here tonight? No overnight visitors in the wing? No sleep tests or anything else out of the ordinary? No, sir. It was only me and Lacey. Nothing was scheduled and we didn't see anyone. Guillermo had been perfectly fine. Unexpected things can happen, but he was always so careful and meticulous ever since Nora Mullins. Tyler helped B roll Mr. Ramirez back over. B, call Lacey and tell her to hold down the fort. I'll be back up there shortly. Go to the security office and check the footage. I'm going to go check out his room. Beatrice cleared her throat as Tyler got to the door. Sir, shouldn't we contact the police before we do any of that? Tyler stopped walking. No, not yet at least. But sir... I said, not yet, B. Dr. Tanner reached Guillermo's room. It looked almost exactly like it had just a few hours prior, except now the television image was frozen. He checked a couple of the machines that kept a log of past readings. All fine until just before Beatrice had called, and then everything went crazy. Tyler left the room and paced around the halls, seeing if anything looked amiss. Dr. Tanner. Tyler turned around and saw Ida sitting at her doorway. I saw something. Dr. Tanner walked closer to Ida. He could tell she was frightened as he walked nearer. What did you see, Miss Vale? A shadow. A tall shadow. My machines went cuckoo. The lights and everything flickered. Then she appeared out of nowhere. She was headed towards the other end of the hall. Then I hid. Miss Ida Vale, former Hollywood darling, may have been known to embellish a story here and there. But she lacked the imagination to make all that up. Are you saying it was a ghost, Ida? Tyler would find it impossible to believe had he not seen for himself the scratches and hand mark on Mr. Ramirez. I'm saying she was a ghost. A chill went down Dr. Tanner's spine. Go back to bed, Miss Vale. He began heading back down to the morgue. Dr. Tanner. Yes, B? Tyler, there's nothing on the cameras. They all stopped working around the same time that Mr. Ramirez passed. Did you see anything in his room? No. Everything looked normal except for the electronics malfunctioning. Have you seen Lacey anywhere? Not since I took Mr. Ramirez to the morgue. She was resetting all of Mr. Powell's machines. Her shift ends in about ten minutes. Maybe she took off early? Tyler pushed the doors of the morgue open. Yeah, you're probably right. Who can blame her? He put on an apron and gloves, grabbed the eye protectors, and made autopsy incisions, then sewed them back up. He filled out the necessary paperwork. For cause of death, he had put sudden cardiac arrest. This wasn't the first time he had lied on a death certificate. Dr. Tanner found an empty room back in his wing to try and get a few hours rest. Yasmin had just gotten there to relieve Beatrice, who had the next two days off. 
Tyler woke up just before his shift was going to start. He splashed some water on his face and brushed his teeth. He had Yasmin call Guillermo's family and tell them the news. He made his rounds, marked in his record book, and monitored, and then did it again and again. Tyler was at his last stop of the day, Mr. Powell. He was awake. Mr. Powell had been asleep during the first couple rounds Dr. Tanner had made. It's a terrible thing, Doc. Yes, yes it is, Mr. Powell. But these things do happen. He quickly finished taking all his readings. Terrible, terrible, terrible. And he had little ones. I'd switch with him, Doc. I'm an old man. I got nobody. Oh, such a shame. He's gonna be missed. I wouldn't. Sure you would, Jenkins. We'd all miss you. Especially Nurse B. (laughs) I suppose you're correct, Doc. Have a good one. Uh, Will I see you tomorrow? or, Or are you off with my Beatrice? Dr. Tanner pointed his arm backwards and gave the old man a thumbs up. I'll see you in the morning, Mr. Powell. He had gotten hardly any sleep for the last 48 hours. Uh, What a long two days it had been. He took a sleeping aid to make sure he went to sleep and stayed asleep. When he awoke the next day, there were almost a dozen missed calls from work and several messages. He played them as he got ready, but they were all silent. He knew that that wasn't a good sign. He got dressed and raced back up to the hospital. Mr. Powell was dead. Yasmin pulled Dr. Tanner to the side. She was exhausted and near breaking point. Tyler, there's something going on here. Scratch marks down his face and arms, and there's a handprint burnt onto his chest. The devil is among us. First Guillermo, now Mr. Powell? Lacey was supposed to relieve her hours ago. Jasmine, go home. I can handle this. His face was sullen and his eyes hollow. Petrification from fear. Yasmine went to get her things. He went to go check on Ida, though his mind was frozen in static. He wanted to stop walking, but couldn't. He knew the answer to the question he was about to ask. He knocked on Ms. Vale's door and entered. Ida's bed was empty. Something stirred in the closet. Tyler walked cautiously to the closed door. It was cracked open. Dr. Tanner. He jumped back as Ida spoke to him from the inside. Doc, it's going to get me tonight. It's going to get us all. I need to get out of here. My story doesn't end like this. He had never seen her so vulnerable nor afraid. Ida, I will figure this out. You will be safe. I have to go look up a couple of things, then I'll be back. No one is staying here tonight. He went back to his office with his stomach in knots. He looked at some old files he had stored on a hidden drive on his computer. Nora Mullins' patient records. Today was her birthday. 
Dr. Tanner threw his office door open and sprinted to start evacuating the few people left, when suddenly everything went black. He must have slipped and hit his head. He woke up on the floor in his office. The lights were flickering and stuttering. The skies were black. He'd been out for hours. Tyler tried to open the door, but it was jammed. He grabbed a paperweight off his desk to break the window in his door. He reared his arm back and threw it forward. Just as he was about to hit the window, the paperweight slipped from his hand and fell to the floor. Through the window, he saw her. Nora Mullins, clad in a black robe, thin and matted black hair, pale skin. Hatred oozed outward from her eyes. She stared into the office momentarily, motionless. She breathed in a quiet rasp, and then vanished. The lights all snapped back on. Tyler waited a few moments before checking the window. He he had to check on Ida. There was no sign of Nora. He broke the window and unlocked the door. Just a few steps and he could see strobing lights coming from outside. He ran to Ida Vale's room. She was face down on her bed, her arms and feet dangling toward the floor. Her gown was ripped off. Letters were burned into her flesh. T-A-N-N-E-R. Dr. Tanner threw up on the floor. He regained his composure and stood on his feet when he heard clicks and screaming. The police kicked the door in as Tyler stared down the barrel of a gun. The officers placed him in handcuffs and walked him out to the patrol car. They walked through the back. Yasmin lay across the floor like a rag doll. An officer was taking pictures of her slumped over body. Hand marks were burned around her neck. Her face was discolored, eyes bulging, tongue swollen. She had been strangled to death. It was her. It was her. It wasn't me. It was her. It was her. It was her. He sat in the patrol car. The police fished Lacey's body out of the medical waste dumpster. Tyler glared into her milky eyes. The police were asking something about B. Her body was found in a shallow grave beneath Tyler's porch. He rocked back and forth as the car drove back to the police station. It was her! It was her! It it was her! 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 A year later, Dr. Tanner is in an asylum for the murders. A young woman walks through the front door. A security guard stops her. Ma'am, you can take your purse, but you have to leave your backpack. She complies and then is walked to Tyler's room by the guard. He knocks and opens the door. Hey, you got a visitor, Doc. Pay him no attention, miss. Just say what you need to say and then get out. He can't answer you. The girl nods as the guard shuts the door behind him. Tyler sits on the floor, rocking back and forth. It was her. 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 The girl walks in front of Dr. Tanner and kneels down. Hello, Dr. Tanner. Can I call you Tyler? 
I'll call you Tyler. Allow me to introduce myself. Tyler drools a little, and his rocking slows. My name is Patience, and I'm only here today because of you. You see, you worked on my mother. His breathing becomes irregular. He stops mumbling and starts shaking as he rocks back and forth. Her name was Nora Mullins. I'm here today because I need to tell you I'm sorry and that I forgive you. I know you didn't mean to leave the clamp inside my mother. You didn't mean to kill her. I'm here to tell you that things will get better. Tyler's eyes start watering. Patience looks at her watch. Oh, goodness. I better be going. I wish you well, Dr. Tanner. Goodbye. She closes the door behind her and glances at the camera. From inside the security room, a gentle, deep buzz starts from Patience's bag. If the security guard in the room knew anything about electronic disruptors, he might have recognized the sound. The lights flicker as the cameras all go black. Patience pulls a long, thin piece of fabric from her purse and a matted black wig and puts them on. She walks back into Dr. Tanner's room. Screams echo through the halls. We grow out of a lot of things from our childhood. Imaginary friends, sucking your thumb, clothes. But there are some things which may seem strange in their absence if you find out they were true for you as a kid. And in this tale, shared with us by author Jake Evers, a young man discovers he formerly had some developmental issues he really should still feel the effects of. So why doesn't he? Performing this tale are Atticus Jackson, Mary Murphy, Jesse Cornett, and Danielle McRae. So if your childhood doesn't add up, then maybe it's time to confront your mom. Maybe it's time she told you about Moon Calf. My mother's dead. I'm supposed to feel something, aren't I? I'm supposed to feel grief, sorrow, some great clawing rage against the failings of the universe. I'm 23. She was 59. She may have become a mom later in life, but there was supposed to be more time, right? It wasn't supposed to end in some dumb accident. She was supposed to have golden years ahead. A long peace. Then again, she hadn't had peace for some time. Neither of us had. We hadn't talked for five years. That last night wasn't a happy one. Screaming, yelling, crying. And finally, 
running out the door in the middle of the night with just a suitcase and a stolen credit card to my name. Every so often in the quiet hours, before the option became impossible, I thought about reaching back, making up. No mother should ever be truly cut off from her son, right? But she's not really my mother. I'm not really her son. Years of Little League, birthday parties, and vacations to Disneyland can't make up for the cold truth. I'm not the kid she brought into the world. Because I know where he is. And if he knew at all, he might feel the same way I do right now. I don't suppose I can complain about my early life. We grew up in the suburbs of Northern California. Not quite Marin, but within spitting range. Dad was a construction foreman, and Mom taught English at the middle school. Dad was always one of those hands-on, hands-off kind of dads. Teach you how to throw a ball, teach you how to build a treehouse, maybe leave the other stuff to Mom. Not that Mom ever dreaded stepping in. She was devoted, always made sure there were goods for the bake sale, Always made sure there was an end-of-season pizza party lined up for the Little League team. Always made sure her son had everything he needed. Mom was always concerned about the future, or my future, in one way or another. She wasn't exactly a tie-dyed, hemp-wearing flower child, but she descended from good NorCal stock that had grown up in that organic, pesticide-free soil. She worried about an artificial world... A world of baby formula over breast milk, of concrete over trees. Even before GMOs really became the issue of the day, she was worried about just what we were putting in our bodies. It wasn't like she made me grow up on tempa and sackcloth, though. She just wanted to make sure everything was alright for her only son. And in time, I was all she had left. I remember the day so clearly. I was 13, at baseball practice when the cop car pulled up. The sheriff had sent someone out to bring me home. When I got there, Mom was crying, surrounded by all of her friends. Not one of them daring to, or knowing how to say anything. Eventually, the truth worked its way out. Dad had been overseeing renovations on a mansion out near the woods. He'd been checking the work from the perimeter when one of the trees, apparently a favorite of termites, had given way. He was crushed under it, one of the branches snapping his neck instantly. We mourned, as families do. We tried to fill the hole, knowing it would never fully be sealed. Mom threw herself into work. I threw myself into school. Between classes and the team, there was plenty to go around, and it wasn't like I was sucking in either regard. I got along with my teachers, my team, my classmates. I guess because I didn't want to spend more time than I wanted to at home, reminding myself of the absence. I wasn't turning my back on my mom in any regard, but I guess even then, I knew we had relatively little tying us together. I didn't actually know anything was wrong until my physical on my 18th birthday. By then, my eyes were turned toward the future. I was looking at Stanford, and there was a real good chance I could get a scholarship. 
Dr. Kowalski was looking me over like he had for 17 birthdays before. It was the usual mess of old hands on young junk, knowing it was necessary but wishing it'd be over sooner. I've turned out quite well. Good grades, good body, good health. You're perfect all around. Now you're off into the world. He actually looked sad as I got up from the table and slipped my shoes on. I'll still come back here. Maybe I'll be in here again. Yes. It's just, I've watched over you since you were a kid. And I know I've watched over a lot of kids, but I like to think I care about them all in my own way. God, I remember how your mother reacted to that little scare. His mouth snapped shut, like he'd realized he'd walked over a line he shouldn't have crossed. I was confused, but I wasn't off my feet enough to think it'd be better to just walk away. What scare? Uh, it's... it's nothing. I... For all his strengths as a doctor, Dr. Kowalski was a shitty liar. And an even shittier gossip. Well, you are my patient, and I'm not breaching confidentiality. When you were two, we noticed there might be a slight developmental lag. Language difficulties, echolalia, repetitive movements, abnormalities in eye contact. It pointed a certain way. I recommended that your mother look into a childhood development psychologist. I've never seen her look so shocked. I told her it was nothing she'd done, but... Silence filled the room again. And then what? Dr. Kowalski shrugged. And then you came back, six months later, for a staph infection. And when you were recovering, you were just fine. Some kids are late bloomers. It happens. I don't know why Dr. Kowalski's story stuck with me, but it did. The end of the year was drawing close, and with it, early admissions. We were just waiting for the letters to come in. I kept my nose to the grindstone, but in the quiet moments, the doctor's words came back. Why hadn't Mom told me this? Did she just not want me to worry? Finally, somewhere between Thanksgiving and Christmas, I decided to exercise my demons. We were sitting down to dinner, just the two of us, when I broached the topic. Dr. Kowalski said there was a little scare when I was a kid. Mom paused. It wasn't the freeze you associate with someone who's been caught in the spotlight, but this momentary hitch and smooth movement that could look normal if you weren't looking for it. Was there? He said that when I was a toddler, I wasn't exactly developing the right way. That there might be some sort of disorder, or... There was a scare, yes. We were worried there might be something wrong with you. That you weren't entirely there. We were looking into some specialist when it all worked out. 
You were talking, you were playing right. Her eyes clouded over. Not tears, not quite. But that distance that comes when you want to keep the memories away. She smiled, warmth flowing forth. You grew up just fine. There was a hiccup. There are always hiccups, but we overcome them. You are my beautiful son, and there's nothing I would change about you. I should have felt happy, I guess. Like I'd solved the mystery, if there even was one. Like I could just set it aside. And yet... But if I did have this problem... She looked me right in the eyes. Then I would love you all the same. What did I hear in those words? Regret? Pain? She was opening herself up, but some part of me could still hear her... hiding. Why did I think there was something wrong with me? Christmas turned to the new year, and Mom had to go down to San Fran for a teacher's conference, leaving me on my own from Thursday to Sunday. With the house to myself, I could have, I don't know, held wild parties, danced around in my underwear. Instead, I went to the family records. It took me hours of digging through and searching, but eventually, I found my medical records. I dug into the stuff from my toddler years and found Dr. Kowalski's report from that physical. It backed up what he said. Developmental lag with eccentricities in movement, language, and social interaction. There was a little note written at the bottom of the page. Refer to Dr. Muneer. I looked through the files. Nothing on Dr. Muneer. Friday afternoon, first thing when I got home from school, I hit Google and found a listing for a Dr. Alice Muneer, still practicing two towns over. I called her office and got the receptionist. We can't release medical records without proof of identity, especially given that the patient in question was a minor. But I'm 18 now. I didn't know much about how this worked, but I'd at least read enough on Google to bluff. I could fax over my driver's license if you need proof. Technically, it's no longer a matter for my guardian. It's my right as an adult to know how I was treated. There was a pause on the other end of the line. Provide me with the proper documentation, and I'll try to get the records over by the end of the day. I faxed her a copy of my driver's license. As the sun crept towards the horizon, I sat in my mom's office, waiting. Tried to distract myself with games on my phone, but I just couldn't. I didn't think there was anything wrong with me, so... Why did this fear keep tearing at me? The fax machine roared to life, knocking me out of my days. Page by page, Dr. Muneer's report was coming in. I snatched the pages up, barely waiting for the job to finish. Sure enough, I'd been brought to see her when I was two. Once. Her records charted my vocabulary, my communication, my social interaction, and all the quadrants that tell mom and dad whether their bundle of joy is growing upright. At the bottom sat the armchair diagnosis. 
pervasive developmental disorder. Further analysis required to fully discern between autism, Asperger's syndrome, and PDD-NOS. There were no further reports. They had gone to a shrink. I'd been diagnosed with something. And while I didn't know a lot about psychology, I did know that autism wasn't something you just snap out of one day. I didn't think of myself as being any of those things. I got along well with other kids. I maintained eye contact. I didn't exactly get lost in myself. Was it a misdiagnosis? I mean, it had to have been. Right? Now I had more questions than answers. Trying to clear my head, I started putting the records back in the filing cabinet, tucking Dr. Meneer's report away in my pocket for further inquiries. As I put the folder back, I noticed something buried at the back of the cabinet. An unlabeled manila envelope with a little bulge to it. I don't know why I reached for it. I guess I was just curious. I popped the clasp and out fell a piece of paper and a small object. The paper drew my attention first. It was old parchment and looked like it had been written on with a quill. I couldn't make out any of the words, which looked somewhere between Old English, Viking ruins, and Klingon. I looked to the object that had fallen on the floor. A small green branch, like a fresh shoot from a tree, with four knots to it. The first knot had already been cracked. The innards still green, even after spinning God knows how long in the back of a filing cabinet. Fully exposed. Why did I grab it? Why did I hold it in my fingers? Why did I exert all my strength to try and break the next knot? The green, pliable wood twisting like a rubber band until finally... It cracked with a sound like a firework. I'll never really know. I'll always remember what happened next, though. As soon as I cracked it, it was like a shadow came over the house. I could feel the chill of winter, even with the heat cranking at full blast. And I knew, deep down in my heart, that I should go outside. I threw on my jacket and boots and went to the backyard. Like much of the town, our house was right on the tree line exposing us both to all the beauty of nature and one hell of a wildfire risk. I scanned the darkness of the woods looking for something, anything, when finally something unfolded out of the shadows. There's a lot of speculation these days on what they are like, if they even are. Even the people who moved beyond the images of Tinkerbell and flower sprites like to land on something like old Victorian dandies on meth. This wasn't like that. When I was overseas, a buddy of mine showed me photos of dolls his ex had collected. These spindly, porcelain things with full articulation that went for like 900 a pop. Thin, tall, fragile, graceful but inflexible in their own way. That's what it was. It moved in silence, wearing black hides and branches. Its eyes reflected the stars, and its skin was like pure snow on old asphalt. 
and looked at me, and it was like a door opened in my head, letting the wind rush through. Every fiber of my being knew that I had to go with it, or I would be hating myself for the rest of my life. We walked through the darkness of the woods, to the place where the trees grew thick and there wasn't even starlight. It moved with perfect grace, and I knew just how to follow in its footsteps. The cold bit deeper, but I didn't shiver. It was like some part of me knew that the night was as cold as it always was, even if I was stepping somewhere where winter reigned. I had no idea what to expect at this point. I wasn't some fantasy nerd. This was out of my wheelhouse. But eventually... The trees gave way to a mansion. I don't mean that a mansion appeared on the horizon. I mean that I was walking on dirt and roots. And a second later, just as I closed my eyes to blink, my boots landed on hard, even stone. When I opened my eyes, I was inside. The walls were ebony. The floor was white marble. And all around me were more of them, watching me with hungry eyes. There's this idea, I guess, that they hold wild balls, chamber music and gossip and dancing into the night, which turns into the day, which turns into the decade. It was like that, if you could hear the music. They danced, yes, but not with wild sweeping gestures, all ball gowns and twirls. It was a precise, practiced grace, like a ballerina on a minefield. Cold, mechanical, moving like knives. They never touched, never spoke, interacting only with eyes and gestures. I felt that if I took one wrong step, I'd be breaking something intricate. And then, I'd really see the knives. At the head of the room, on a throne built from bones of something I doubt had ever existed in our world, sat a woman in a black gown. Her skin was the white of milk, what little I could see under the obsidian mask strapped to her face. A crown of sharpened ivory sat on her head, pointing to the ceiling. And at the seat of the throne, in black and white fool's garb, was me. He looked exactly like me, hair a little longer, teeth that had never seen a dentist's tools, but still, me. He was curled up at the foot of the throne, perfectly still, not like the others who were fixed like statues. It was practiced, apprehensive, like he knew all too well that if he so much as twitched, they'd fall on him. Then he looked at me. There was this light in his eyes. He saw me the way I saw him. He reached for me, like I was some sort of anchor. The queen noticed. She snapped her fingers. One of the dancers stepped towards the other me, drawing a long black baton. With practiced grace, he thrust it under the other me's chin lifting his head back to the point that I thought it might snap. He began moaning, loud and long, just on the verge of tears. 
Around him, the dancers stopped, watching the show. The baton shifted, the pitch changed, and then they began dancing faster and freer. Not with abandon, but with frenzy. Surgery turned to stabbing. I felt something slip inside me, and I turned and I ran, sprinting through the forest, feet catching on roots and rocks, not stopping until I reached my backyard. I bent over the porch and puked. <coughs> I locked the doors behind me, fearing they might come back. It didn't. It showed me what they wanted me to see. I was waiting when mom came back, sitting on the couch. I'd had the weekend to do some reading. I had some idea what was going on, even if I felt like I really knew jack shit. She was halfway through talking about her conference can't even remember what she was saying when she noticed I was just staring ahead. She sat down, all caring and concerned. What's wrong? I saw the other me. Her face fell instantly. She knew. Please. When did it happen? You have to understand. Then help me! I bolted up from the couch and started pacing. I know. This was an excuse people used back then, right? A kid's born wrong, has some sort of condition, and they say, Oh, it's not my kid. They took it and left behind one of their own. So when? Was it in my crib? Or... I let the other half of the sentence hang. She knew what I was talking about. You're not one of them. She didn't want to use the word either me because I thought it sounded weird. Her, because she actually sounded afraid of using it. I saw it happen. I wanted to cut deep, get at the pressing issue, but a part of me wanted the full picture. How did you even know about them? Your great-grandmother. She... she'd heard stories from her great-grandmother, and so on and so on. Little things to tell tiny Irish tots so they'd make their beds and leave milk out for stray cats. I didn't really believe them, but... Parchment. It was a contract, wasn't it? She didn't even answer. She didn't have to. When did you call them? She just looked away from me. When? After the diagnosis. Before I could say anything, she rushed forward. You're not one of them. Sweetie, please, listen. I saw it happen. They took me in. Took us in. They took some of me. Some of... They made you whole. From me. From... From me. The other me. The real me. Honey, you are real. And so is he! I closed the distance with my mother. She flinched, but didn't step back. You traded me! Traded him! Why? Why did you let them have him? There are... They can do things. But they said they couldn't cure. 
I wanted you, son. I didn't want some version of you locked in your own head, dead to the world. I wanted to know that you heard me, that you saw me, that you knew I was there for you. The bottom fell out of my stomach. Everything I feared was true. Did Dad know? She was quiet again, every other part of her retreating while she stood completely still. Did he know? He never knew. He thought it was just a mistake, a misdiagnosis. But when you were 13, he found the contract. He didn't know what it meant. He didn't know what the stick meant either, but... That was the first knot down, wasn't it? I don't think they answered. I don't think they showed him. He just said he found the paper the night before. Accidentally snapped the stick under his foot. That was... Oh, God. That was the day. She couldn't bring herself to finish it. She didn't need to. I just needed to know one more thing. Can you bring him back? The other me. I... No. The contract, it's sealed. No returns. If it's broken, they'll come for me. They'll come for you. Honey, please. I didn't want to hear anymore. I ran upstairs. I'd already packed, fearing this possibility. I ran downstairs and out the door. I got in my car and drove off, leaving my home far behind. She was still crying when I left. She didn't even try to stop me. So, as you'd imagine, I was left stranded after that. I found out online that I'd gotten to Stanford, but student aid and loans wouldn't be quite enough to cover the tuition. Besides, I didn't really want to go anywhere where I knew she might find me. I was technically a high school dropout. While I kept moving, using mom's credit card for funds, I completed my GED. She finally canceled the card two months later. I guess she wanted to give me some space in case I got over it and came home. With nowhere else to go, really, I enlisted in the army. Jumped at the chance to go overseas. Wanted to get as far away from home as possible. One time, when I came back stateside, I learned someone had been asking for me while I was in the sandbox. A P.I., apparently. Mom had been looking for me, perhaps wanting to try to make amends however she could. But I didn't want to hear any of it. And I never would. So, now here I am. Off on bereavement leave back to the home I never wanted to see again. The funeral's today, and after that, the reading of the will. I imagine she's left me the house and everything in it, including the contract and the branch. I've been doing a lot of readings since that night. Know things about them. I don't know how much of it is true. Iron, church bells, roosters crowing, all that stuff. But I do see common themes about them using glamour, the stuff of dreams and emotions. I've also been reading up on autism spectrum disorder, the big umbrella term now for whatever particular version the other me had. 
And while I don't know enough for certain, I have some ideas. And I know I keep saying them a lot, because a part of me can't bring itself to use the word. Fairies. I still can't break past that sense of whimsy and wonder. Even the terms people used to get around that when they feared saying the word might piss them off don't work. The fair folk, the good neighbors, there's nothing fair about them. Nothing good. And certainly nothing wonderful. And there are things I will never truly know about them. What were they using me for? The other me. The real me. A jukebox? Someone who'd play a pretty tune if they stuck something in him? A meal, an all-you-can-eat feast for emotions? Or maybe he was some sort of cask. A place where thoughts and dreams can steep, bouncing off the walls inside his head, until someone taps it and the right vintage pours out. If he'd gotten therapy... If mom hadn't balked at the diagnosis, treated him as a person instead of a walking miscarriage, would he even be all that valuable to them? All I really know is that there's still a branch with two knots. I've learned a lot about their supposed stopping points. Clothes turned inside out, salt over the shoulder, and of course... And I've learned a hell of a lot about how to kill someone. I doubt I'm going to get them all. They moved too quick, and they got inside my head real easily the first time. But, if there's any truth to these old wards, maybe I can stay upright long enough to at least clear a pathway out of there. Tonight, I'm going to try and set things right. And if only one of us makes it out of there... I can at least hope it's the right one. If you're a psychic medium, then helping the bereaved might be a regular occurrence. When you can contact the dead, it's only natural that the people want to utilize your services to ensure their loved ones are living their best afterlife. But in this tale, shared with us by author P.F. McGrail, we meet a widow who may just have an ulterior motive for checking up on her past partner. Performing this tale are Aaron Lillis and Nicole Goodnight. So let's all clasp hands and begin the seance. It's just business as usual, though, because I have an unusual job. So... You're worried that your dead husband is haunting you when you fuck other men? Ignoring her wince at my raspy voice, I inhaled a long drag of my cigarette, then took care to blow the smoke just far enough from her face to avoid being rude. 
She didn't flinch, which meant she thought I had a lot to offer. Pretty little thing she was, nearly 30 years old, though I'd estimate the age of her modified chest to be about three. Her good looks stemmed mainly from the fact that she'd clearly avoided a lifetime of hard work. I probably would have been equally attractive 25 years ago had my twin passions been vanity and stupidity. This gal was taken care of. Her expression glazed for just a moment. I noticed. No, it's nothing like that. She looked up at me with wide eyes that had been conditioned to elicit sympathy. I noticed. She bit her lip. It's just... It's just that Raymond's been gone a month. But I I don't think that he's gone gone, you know? I want to know if I should put him behind me or... It started out small. His favorite sweater would be hanging in the closet, but... The next morning, it it was lying on the bedroom floor. Not a big deal, you know? She looked around conspiratorially, despite the fact that no one was in the brightly lit sun porch besides the two of us. As if sensing my thought, my cat Sophocles rubbed up against my skirt. I reached down and scratched his ear without turning away from my client. The woman stared right back at me, looking over the swirling vapor dancing from the teapot's spout. But then I would be, um, in in an intimate moment. Masturbating or fucking. Her face quickly turned from pink to crimson. Um, the first one, I'd hear a sudden banging on my bedroom door. It, 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 It would go away whenever I stopped. Uh, what I was doing. What makes you think it's your dead husband? I crushed my cigarette and lit a new one as she gazed down at the table. He would always interrupt me, even if it wasn't about anything naughty. She looked up at me in desperation. It just feels like him. Does that make any sense? But the worst thing was last night. That's what made me decide that it was time to talk with a, um, professional. She bit her lip again. God, her little pauses and cute blushing were irritating. I really wanted to slap her. I took in the first drag of my new cigarette. Explain. A long pull of the cigarette really makes people like her worth it. What was her name? Cindy? She seemed like a Cindy. The Cindy's of the world always scatter from my mind for just a few seconds during that first sensual puff. In those moments, I feel so capable. Last night... Reality set back in. (coughs) (coughs) Listen, Cindy. It's Aunt Samantha. You must have jilled off thousands of times in your life. I'm sorry. Jilled? Well, are you a Jack from the waist down? She laid a dainty little hand right on her mouth. Oh, uh, no, no, um, my, I'm all Jill, I suppose. So, what's so different about Jilling off now? Her eyes got wide again, but I had learned long ago to suppress the slap urge. When I'm alone in bed, I hear breathing. Only when I'm alone, it's unmistakable. Well, how hard are you working? 
She dropped the hand from her face. The breathing is coming from the other side of the room. I gave her an unblinking, fixed stare. She returned it. I finally turned away when a lump of ash fell from my cigarette onto the table. I offered the cup, resting my hand on the painted grapefruit and lavender design of the teapot to hold it steady. Here, drink this. She took it obediently, blew on it, then took a sip and winced. Too hot? Too bitter. Too bad. Drink the whole cup if you want to see what's on the other side. You've told me that Raymond's been gone a month. You're broken-hearted, but you can't move on if he's still there. The shock was terrible, wasn't it? A hit-and-run while he was crossing the street, right in front of your own home. The worst moment of your life was sprinting through the house, knowing what was outside before you saw it. The hope was the worst, because you knew that your husband's broken body would be lying in the street. But the smallest part of you hoped that it wasn't true, and that hope made it hurt so much more. You found him in a gory heap just beyond your front yard, and the future you'd imagined drained away like blood through your fingers. And it was in that exact moment, kneeling in the middle of the street at 7.13 p.m., that you realized your life had been permanently changed to a different path of someone else's choosing. I took an aggressive puff of the cigarette and pressed forward. The sun set while you held his already cooling hand, and you realized that this would be the first sunset you'd spend knowing he was dead, and that you would end every day with this thought on your mind from now on. She blanched. I never told you that it was at sunset. I never even said it was a car accident. I narrowed my eyes at her. The guilt was more than you expected because part of you had actually cared about Raymond. Yes, he was old and boring. My God, you would never let him forget it. But he'd felt just so fucking fragile when you crushed his spine with the car that the anger didn't seem to make sense in the moment. I blew smoke through my nostrils. He knew it was you, Cindy. You pulled the car into the driveway and rinsed off the blood so fast that no one even thought to check it for evidence. But he knew, and as he lay dying, unable to speak through shattered lungs, he stared at you, without hate, malice, or vengeance. It was simple confusion, Cindy. Raymond never considered that you did it for the cash. His dying thought was wondering how he'd somehow been a bad husband, and he felt guilty for not knowing why. Her eyes were shimmering with tears that I believed were genuine, but I didn't give a shit. Her cup was empty. I was so careful. I rolled my eyes. No, you weren't, sweetie. People are just stupid, and that's the only reason you've gotten away with everything so far. Really, putting $619,138 in a briefcase is just asking for trouble. How could you possibly have known? I blew one last long stream of smoke from the cigarette. If I were in your shoes, sweetie, I'd be much more worried about how much poisonous oleander you just had with your tea. What did you do to me? 
I pulled the cigarette butt from my lips and quashed it in her empty cup. Make peace with whatever god or devil awaits your heart. I turned to look across the sun porch at the ghost only I could see. Raymond was a disgusting mess. His shattered spine had no hope of holding his torso rigid, so every limp limb flopped at unholy angles. A fountain of black blood oozed from his white lips and nose. His intestines protruded from his stomach like round beef squeezed between grimy fingers, and the coils hung to the ground like sausage links. He stared at his young widow, or, I should say, the one eye that hadn't popped to jelly was staring. I really think that Cindy would have been unnerved if she'd known he was there. Instead, she focused on me. How long? When when will it start? In just a second, sweetie. I lit up another cigarette. Raymond grunted. He wasn't much for talking. What with the lolling tongue dangling impotently where his missing jaw should have been. I leaned forward and gently rested my palms on the tabletop. Oh, one last thing, sugar. Raymond wants to let you know that Diane really, really fucking hurts. And Samantha froze. Behind her, despite lacking a mouth, I could swear that Raymond was smiling. The convulsion started then, but it didn't stop for a long time. Do you have any idea how far mouth foam can spray when a dying woman just won't stop thrashing? I almost felt bad for her when I realized how hard she was trying to cry. That's a really fucking difficult task, though, when your throat's closing up. That's when Raymond sauntered over to her jittering body, knelt down and gently grazed his dead fingertips across her cheek. He looked passionately into her eyes, and for just a moment, I think she looked back. Then she was gone. The ghost corpse took in the sight for a few moments before I interrupted him with a forced clearing of my throat. He glanced up at me with his lone functioning eye. It was damp. I do appreciate your clear instructions on how to locate the briefcase. If everything is as promised, the bill will be settled. He grunted and waved his limp, floppy arm at the body of his dead wife. Her? Oh, I'll leave her in the backyard of your house. I snuck an oleander plant into the garden during one of my nightly visits. They're not uncommon here in Alabama. And they'll explain her accidental death nicely. I wrinkled my nose and took in a deep breath of nicotine-laced air. And I have to say, I'll be grateful to stop sneaking into your house each night to spook this murderous little witch. Her masturbatory moans made me gag, and I hate crawling through windows. I'm not 50 anymore, you know. He grunted again, dangling his unresponsive arm above the dead woman once more. I approached the corpse. Hmm? There's something more? He shook more eagerly, spraying a fine mist of ghost blood onto the woman's purple face. I bent down and pried a ring from the woman's rubbery hand. Then I slipped it onto my middle finger. It fit perfectly. Oh my. There must be two dozen diamonds on this. Yes, thank you very much. I do accept tips for a job well done, you gentlemen, you. This time, I know Raymond was smiling, and I was too. My name is Patricia Barnes, and I'm a hitman for ghosts that only I can see.
being a killer for hire. Ah, it's the dream. Uh, Well, for some people, I'm sure. But imagine being an assassin, only your targets are trees. I mean, think about it. There's likely a lot of demand. That one willow blocking a neighbor's view. That tree in the park that all the kids congregate under. Chop it down. But in this tale, shared with us by author Matthew G. Reese, we discover that even an illegal lumberjack can be haunted by his victims. I join Andy Cresswell, Erica Sanderson, Penny Scott Andrews, Joe Sheary, and David Alt in performing this tale. So take out your axe and give that tree 40 wax. You just have to hope that you're not beating on dead wood. I started to climb. It was difficult. The tree had no natural steps, no considerate clefts. Her dark branches reached at awkward angles, held themselves at hostile levels, as if they'd grown with resistance in mind. With this night in mind. The cedar's bark chafed my skin beneath my overalls. My hair grew wet with sweat. Needles tumbled into my eyes as I tried to get purchase with my hands on the bowl and the branches above. When I'd first seen her, the tree, during the day, she was a beauty. Stunning. Like some Hollywood actress from a golden age. But now, unquestionably, she was a bitch. A geriatric of the kind that refuses to yield. All elbows and knees, mad-eyed, wild-haired, fighting, kicking, thin coverlet clenched a bristly chin. The climb exhausted me. When I'd clawed far enough, I stopped and sat in the collar of two branches, caught my breath in the damp air. Then I took hold of the rope looped at my shoulder and drew it tight around the trunk. I threw both ends to the lawn below. Having done so... I began my descent. Near halfway was the place where the bough that now lay in next door's garden had broken. I looked down at the sheared limb in the ruins of the greenhouse whose structure it had shattered, the cause of my hiring. Suddenly, my head swam. I locked my hands on the tree, breathed heavily, held her close, steadied my heart's racing beat. I resumed my route down. Finally, I jumped to the lawn. A fox was running on the wet grass, skittering, looking at me. I picked up the ends of the rope that I'd tossed from the tree. I walked to the far side of the garden and lashed one end around a steel peg that I'd hammered into the lawn with a mallet, having first muffled the head with some rags. I did the same with the other end at a distance from the first. The watching fox, clearly curious as to my labours, calmed me. When I lowered my goggles and ripped my saw to life, the animal deserted, fled, its nimbleness strangely at odds with the heaviness of everything else. The houses, the tree, the night. I angled the saw into the trunk of the tree. It spat aside bark. Orange dust flew out as I made the first notch, wide like a mouth in the cedar's side. I went round to the opposite side and worked the saw deep into the tree's heart. My immersion detached me from the wine and drawl, from everything. 
Satisfied, I drew the saw out and silenced it. I became aware in my peripheral vision of lights in nearby houses, but I kept my focus on the tree. I drove two wedges at left and right into the second cut. I struck them with the same mallet I'd used on the pegs. Cracking, stretching, groaning, mournful sounds of the kind you imagine boats built of beams make at sea came from inside her. For a moment, she seemed to hesitate, to waver. Then, with a moan, an almost gentle swish, and finally a decidedly ungentle crash, she came down on the lawn. Now lights were coming on everywhere. A dog was barking, its noise setting off another. A woman somewhere was calling. Can you see anything? Tom, be careful. I headed down an alley to my van, threw in my things, drove. In the morning, I went to the cafe. An old guy I'd seen there previously was at the next table, staring into space. Trish, who runs the place, said his name was Gerald, and that in the night someone had done something really awful and cut down his tree. Trish said Gerald's dad had planted it on the day Gerald was born. Why would anyone have done such a thing? What is the world coming to? When I got back home, the phone was ringing. It was my controller, with the next target. Leave only firewood, the voice said, and hung up. When I came upon it, I had no qualms. A conifer hedge of the soil-leaching, light-eclipsing kind. Bogus trees, green but dead, like plastic between my finger and thumb. It was a mercy killing, I told myself. Even the shelled wastelands of the Somme would have shunned them. I cut straight through them at night. Twenty. It felt good, but it wasn't enough. I'd been a cab driver, night shifts. I lost my license when I lost my temper and a customer lost three teeth. That was when they found me, in the way that people like them do. Before the cabs, the army, theatres of war, that strangest of phrases. Places you'll have heard of, but not actually known, unless you were there. I learned about trees from Ken. I found him in a forest in Canada, on the internet I mean, in my local library. He'd made films of himself cutting down trees. I'd imagined lumberjacks to be tall, athletic, but Ken was on the dumpy, stumpy side. He had a ginger beard and a shirt in red and black checks. He wore an orange helmet and blue earmuffs. His skills impressed me, both his cutting and his teaching. After he'd made an incision, he'd turn off and lay down his saw, say something like, Now, I want you to take a good look at this so you remember what I've done. He'd point at a birch or a pine to make clear why he'd gone about things in the way that he had. Sometimes he placed a tape measure against the bark. He didn't promote a particular saw or jacket or ask if I wanted to meet other lumberjacks, and I appreciated that. It was just Ken cutting trees. He was concerned a lot for my health and safety, which was something that was new to me. He talked about the importance of always planning an escape route, which he said the American way, 
route, like clout. One time he seemed to run pretty quickly towards the camera, which wobbled, but he still declared the job a great fall while catching his breath. There were eight films. At the end of each of them, Ken warned of the importance of cutting with care. Then he'd raise his safety helmet. Happy felon, fellers! I came to see him as a friend. Ken's films had been on the internet for six years. A counter said they'd been watched by 11 people, none of whom had left any feedback. So I wrote, Thanks. For the next year, I killed trees. I worked coast to coast, mountain to valley. A motorcycle courier left packets of cash for me in Trish's cafe. She knew nothing, of course. There were some notable kills, it has to be said. In Scotland, I scythed a stand of pines that had a preservation order, but which were blocking alterations at a high-end golf course. On the south coast of England, I dismembered a fine chestnut that had spread itself into the sea view of a personality often seen on TV. In the Welsh borders, I destroyed an entire orchard of ancient apple trees that had threatened a planned estate of what the agent called executive homes. I had my subtle side too. A monkey puzzle tree, the Araucaria Araucana, began its slow and painful death in the quad of a famous college thanks to the poisoned rods I skewered in its side one half term. My link man was the college's head porter. He said the senior dons How appropriate that word seems. Knew everything. They were hungry to erect some steel and glass centre. The porter assured me I had nothing to fear. The police attributed my work to vandals, thieves, bungling contractors. I was uncatchable, unstoppable. No one thought or wanted to connect the fresh stumps of five old oaks in a Norfolk park to a copper beach sliced and diced on a Gloucestershire green. Developers were my biggest customers, of course. More often than not, they didn't want trees hanging around, holding up projects, causing a fuss. But some of my sponsors might surprise you. The client who had me cut down a healthy beach in a Midlands town square was a white-haired spinster, aggrieved by the way youths met there come evening. As I dispatched it one dawn, I caught sight of her at a window, twitching the curtain, thrilled by my deed. My killing became industrial. Chainsaws weren't enough. I erased an entire mile of greenbelt outside one northern city through a process of contamination. The authorities, who had themselves hired me, later reclassified the land as spoil, paving the way for an out-of-town Marlin stadium with a car park only marginally smaller than an airport runway. I was interrupted only once about to lay waste to some willows in the garden of a house by a river you may well have heard of. The trees were of some literary significance. A man who'd been a guest at the residence felt he'd been slighted in some fashion by another guest at a dinner party. Although the hosts were blameless and had no part in the matter, the man who felt himself wounded placed a contract on the willows. A show of power, or so he thought, that even I found perverse. A young girl, no more than ten, approached me in the soft darkness of a midsummer night as I considered how I might best take the willows apart. What are you doing? I'm... checking the trees. The girl was in her nightdress. She had a grey rabbit in her arms, which she was petting. Why? 
They need to be checked sometimes. I'm checking Roger. She stroked back the ears of the rabbit. That's good. Lights came on in the downstairs of the house at the top of the garden. A woman's voice called the girl, whose name was Martha. The girl walked away, talking to the rabbit. For a moment, she turned back to me. Then she walked on. I gathered my things and went to the jetty at the bottom of the garden. I slipped the moorings of the boat I'd tethered there, then drifted downstream. The man who felt himself slighted contacted my handlers. He wanted to know why the willows were still standing, demanded to know when exactly the riverbank would be littered with their carcasses. He was paying good money, he said. When I did it, I made the newspapers. They called it the work of a madman, a maniac. I felt insulted. I thought about calling them, holding a press conference to explain myself, my work, at which I would reveal all, as they say, the role of the thin-skinned man, the part of the sarcastic man, the needling contributions of their wives who would not, could not, let the slight, real or imagined, rest. I didn't, of course. Then came the you. A thousand years old. So ancient, it no longer looked like a tree. Its girth enormous, deformed, mutated, grown in on itself. It didn't have bark in any normal sense, but a grotesque hide. Sharp ridges, sinister valleys, foul tumours, clenched knots. Its crown was absurdly low, as if it had been stamped down by the sky. Surveying its mounds and sprouts and swellings, I couldn't help but think of Merrick, the elephant man. But I had no pity for the ewe, and it had no mercy for me. Its needles were more black than green, and brimmed with poison. It crouched beside a West Country church in a yard of flaking headstones lodged at strange angles like ships run aground. And yet, for all of the ewe's ugliness, there were those who saw it as beautiful, venerable, even sacred. Had not the archers of Cressy, Poitiers, and Agincourt cut bows from trees just like it? In the old grey church, a faded pamphlet spoke of the yew and the angel of Mons, how the ghostly bowmen of Agincourt rose as one in a Flanders field, five centuries on, to hurl back the Hun and save the lives of beleaguered British soldiers, to whose ranks I had myself, of course, once belonged. The vicar, a new man, saw things differently and wanted the ewe dead. He was young, a high flyer, lean, keen, smelling of cologne. The ewe stood in the way of his plans for a meeting hall, kitchen and cloakrooms, stood in the way of him. The congregation had split into factions. A special court had been arranged to decide the ewe's fate, but this parson was impatient. He wanted to make his mark and move on. There were rectorships, deaneries, bishoprics waiting to be had. The U required an accident. I left word that I'd return when conditions were favorable. When one evening I saw the isobars tight as a knot on the television news, I knew it was time.
The wind pummeled my van. I fought the wheel like the skipper of a trawler. Soon there was no traffic. The sky blackened, and rain of a kind that I had never seen swept down in waves that fell like swarms of arrows. Abandoned cars littered my route. Torn cables slithered and hissed, shooting sparks over pools that glowed with electric blue light. Soon trees became my obstacles, falling and blocking my way as if they knew my business, as if they were sacrificing themselves for the you. I chainsawed through them and drove on between dark woods that moaned and wailed. When I reached the church, the you glared. It knew. Wind blasted the lynchgate shut. I heaved it open, dragging after me the chains with which I intended to shackle that hag of a tree. Flowers from headstones flew into the air. Notices tore away from aboard, whirling furiously into the night like startled rooks. Slates crashed from the roof of the church, shattering on crosses and tombs, its stained glass meanwhile erupting outwards as if machine-gunned from within. I dropped my chains by the porch and went back to my van for my saw and my axe. When I re-entered the yard, my reception party was waiting. Ken was first to scurry alongside. As with every specimen, what you have to ask yourself is, do you really need to take down this tree? I brushed him away. He gave me a resentful look. His helmet flew into the churning sky. He disappeared after it. Next came Trish, the blue tabard she wore at work tight against her in the gale. She waved envelopes that were bursting with banknotes. All this is yours. How many more must die? She threw the notes into the air. The wind drove them against headstones, spiked them on hedges, swept them into brooks that boiled and laughed. Next, I saw old Gerald clinging to a beam in the porch, as if to the edge of a cliff, as if to the edge of the world. I leaned into the storm and looked at him. The tempest unlocked his fingers one by one, and then the church sucked him into its stones, head, chest, waist, as if it were some horrific, molten bog. I reached the yew. Beneath its swaying branches stood little Martha, whose willows I had spared, then slaughtered. The yew had hold of her hair, and was twisting her locks backwards into the foul folds of its trunk. You're not checking the tree! You're not! You're not! The bells of the church began to peal. It was as if the yew, with the cunning that had seen it survive for centuries, was summoning defenders to its boughs. Voices made me turn. Answering the ancient tree's call were the dead of the parish, who, even before my eyes, were rising from their graves. Smocked farmers and their wives, soldiers in scarlet, a parson holding down his hat. They stamped their feet, shook soil from their clothes. A nurse in a uniform of blue and white helped the older, less able corpses to their feet. A teacher called her young charges who ran to her skirts. Whiskered men mustered in groups. An apron butcher spoke with a doctor whose gladstone bag swung in the gale. 
A lean man in a top hat and chain of office thrust a furled umbrella into the wind. The indignant dead assembled behind him, bent into the wind, and marched on me. They drove me backwards against the yew, stripping me of my axe and my saw. Their pale, pinched faces pressed inches from mine. He wants our tree. Well, he's not having it. The lean man with the chain thrust the wooden handle of his umbrella under my chin. The butcher joined in, taking my hair in his fist like entrails from a block. You're not having it, you hear? You're not not having having it. it. You're You're not not having having it. You're You're not not having having it. it. The children ran back to their graves and returned with soil, which they pelted at my face and chest. The women tore off my clothes so that I became naked. Two soldiers took my arms and held me hard against the yew. Parting the mob, a group overseen by the man with the chain advanced and placed on my head a crown of thorns. Above me, the yew shook and creaked and groaned. And then, all was blackness. No earthly signs of me remain. Not a tooth, not a nail, not a hair, not a button, not a lace, not a thread, not a thing. Had I been hanged or gored or beaten or burnt something of me, a finger perhaps, maybe my watch, charred and cracked, would have been left. But there was nothing. It was as if I'd been swallowed whole. The problem with the yew has been solved. What I mean to say is that the tree has stayed and the young vicar has gone. Clippings ground into his fancy leaf tea saw to that. He suffered a little, I suspect, trembled and staggered as the toxins took hold, then collapsed, lay cold on the vicarage floor. I can't say for sure, but it's possible that his last sight through his kitchen window as he fell to the ground was of the churchyard and the yew, which, unlike him, was still standing, of course. Next, I went in search of the courier whose job it had been to bring me my bounty as the hired hand. I knocked him from his motorbike in the street near Trish's cafe, put a saw to his throat, told him my killing had to stop. He told me to go to a grey block in a part of town long conquered by concrete. He said that there I would find him, the one that I wanted. My entrance was spectacular. Call to mind soldiers who camouflage themselves with nets, twigs, grass and creams, and who hide undetected for days in ditches and fields, and you will, perhaps, have half the picture. In my case... The foliage was real. Green shoots that sprang from my skull. Tendrils that twisted and turned in place of my tongue. Stalks and stems that swept from my excavated eyes and ears. Leaves that swarmed my torso and limbs. Needles like scalpels that flailed from my fingers. A beard of lush moss that clung at my jaw. Each and every inch of me coppiced. Spinnied. So, I found him. My controller, master, 
call him what you will, at a desk with a telephone and papers piled high. On a wall were maps punctured with red pins. He was skewering in yet more. I went about my work. An incision to the right of the trunk, a deeper cut to the left, then wedges hammered left and right, just as Ken had taught me. I detached myself with clinical efficiency from his shouts and screams so that, amid the crimson fountains, I would and did avoid any entanglement of limbs. The fall was a good one. And where am I now? Well, sometimes, when shadows lengthen on autumnal evenings, and a coolness stalks the stillness of this ancient and lichened churchyard. At that hour when bats and owls commence their vespertine callings, and fish in their dark pools rise heavily for the last flies of the day, then those that pass by with their prayer books, who happen to look at the old you closely, may, perhaps, in the dying light, decipher in its folds a face a form, for I am here, and always shall be, protector, defender, savior. I am the green man now. In our final tale, we're faced with the sobering subject of spousal abuse. Ella wanders the streets, battered and exhausted, until she finds herself face to face with a mysterious woman who offers her a solution to the problem of her aggressive husband. But in this tale, shared with us by author L.C. Barlow, we're reminded how insidious domestic violence can be as evidenced by Ella's hesitance to accept the help. Performing this tale are Jessica McAvoy, Mary Murphy, and Graham Rowett. So don't be too quick to dismiss an offer for help, even if it seems somewhat strange, even if it comes in the form of a pill, and even if that pill is called Dr. Catalyst. early evening and the sidewalks were crowded. The scent of beer and vanilla wafted over the streets, which glowed ethereally from the neon signs and overhead lamps. Moths and flies threw themselves around the lamps, swooping in circles close to the bulbs. Most of the people walked in zigzags between the sides of the street that had been closed off for the weekend. Trills of laughter shot through the air. Distant from me, people were laughing and drunk. Their emotion, so full and blossoming, stopped short of the street's barricade, as though bouncing off it like petals thrown against glass. I had my sunglasses on to shield me from the outside world. 
I let my drink slip down in my hand and held it like a rose between two fingers at my side. Please don't look at me, I thought, as individuals passed from my side of the barricade to the fun. I won't know what to say to you. I didn't even know where I was going. I took a drink from the glass and walked away from the street festival. I walked for a long, long time. The din quieted, and I was left alone beneath the full moon. I tripped over something on the sidewalk and barely stopped myself from falling. A jab of pain stabbed into my ankle, but quickly disappeared once I found my balance. I looked back and saw a woman's shoe. It wasn't mine. It was blue with a fake platinum jewel on top that had been torn from the fabric. The heel had broken off. Whoever it belonged to had long ago left it behind. I wheezed for a few moments, catching my breath and ignoring the pain in my ribs. I stared at it, thankful I hadn't actually fallen, and then readied myself to move on. My gaze shifted up, and what I saw stopped me from taking a step. I lifted my sunglasses from my face to see the house better, then let them slip back down quickly. I took another sip of my newfound drink and looked to the open front door. There was a woman standing on her porch, staring at me. She was a large woman with hair pulled back into a bun. She stared at me with wide, open eyes and a mouth parted innocently. She wore a light green boat neck shirt that was tucked into a mustard yellow skirt draped about her waist in large, dainty swaths. Her hands were cupped in front of her as though she were waiting for someone. I looked behind myself, searching for the person she might be expecting. There was no one there, and most of the people enjoying the night were blocks away. A faint glow over the top of one of the houses and a few whoops and hollers were the only evidence of the weekend festival. Returning my gaze to the woman, I tilted my head. I took a step back, and this time, I landed right on the shoe and did fall. My hands went out instinctually, and I landed on the wine glass, slamming it against the cement. It broke, and a jagged piece punctured my skin. The pain was fierce. I drew in a sharp breath and stared down at my hand. There was a large shard sticking out of my palm. I gritted my teeth. Honey. The mysterious woman that had been at the front of the house was suddenly beside me. Her breath was warm and carried with it a strong scent of cloves and oranges. Her voice was soft and smooth, and when she spoke, it was like a finger curling, inviting me close. Here, let me help you. She took hold of my hand with the glass in it. And before I could blink, she had plucked the shard from the center of my palm. As we stared at the blood welling up out of the wound, I saw that the cut crossed up and down over all the lifelines in my palm, separating them into two. Why don't you come on inside? I'll get you a bandage. Hmm? I looked into her eyes and was too overwhelmed by what had just happened. Slowly, I nodded. 
She helped me stand and then led me towards the house. I tripped on the first stair, but grabbed the railing with my good hand and managed the rest of the way onto the porch. She drew open the screen door and stepped inside. I followed. Even with the sunglasses on, my eyes were drawn to the images around us. The walls were maroon, and a myriad of wooden objects and figures covered almost the entirety. There was a scent of some intense herb in the air, and when a particularly heavy batch of it hit me, I coughed. The woman stepped to the right, past two couches, and I followed. And as I followed, the floorboards groaned beneath me, like there was something beneath trying to slip its fingers through the cracks. She led me into an area in the back, to a room that looked like the rest of the home, except that it had two plush velvet orange chairs with wooden frames, a desk behind those, and boxes upon boxes, like towers, all around the furniture. She sat me in one of the chairs and then went to the wooden desk. As I watched, I saw her retrieve from one of the drawers gauze and antibiotic ointment. As I watched her, I started crying. The cut had kept my attention from anything else, but the pain was dissipating. I finally had enough wherewithal to take notice of myself again. I was sobbing. The large woman with her hair and a bright red cloth was near me again. It's all right. I got you. She looked at my palm, and she bent over me like a mother over a child. I kept my eyes closed while she worked. She squeezed the antibiotic ointment over the wound and wrapped it in the coarse gauze. When she was done, she secured it with a piece of tape. You're fine. You can stop crying now. I couldn't, though. I shook my head, feeling ashamed. I looked away from her, nausea washing over me, my stomach turning. The smell of cloves and oranges was all around me and so thick and intense that it was like I was drinking them. I opened my mouth, drew in a deep breath, and the air tasted like clementine. Her eyebrows dropped down into an expression of concern. Oh honey, what's wrong? What happened to you? Without warning, she lifted my glasses. I snatched at them, but was too late. She saw. I slammed them back down on my face. For a long while, she stood quietly. There was only the ticking of a clock in some distant part of the house. Then she walked from me, pulled the other plush velvet orange chair over close. She sat down, and I could feel her stare. What's going on? You can tell me. My mouth was open, and a thick stream of spit slipped across my bottom lip. I saw it land on the floor beneath my feet. I was so embarrassed and shut my mouth quickly, my teeth clacking. I turned from her, pushing myself up. She clasped my arm, and the way her hand stuck to me, hard and unyielding, made me look at her, startled. Her eyebrow was cocked. She looked at me as though 
instead of saying, I had told her everything. I see. I think I can help you. It wasn't as though a little round woman was looking at me, but rather that there was something else inside of her, something keen and hard, and it was speaking to me. What was even stranger was that I could feel that keenness and hardness, and I felt it so deeply that it astonished me. There was a tiny blip, almost negligible, but definitely there, a gap in my anxiety. Then it was back again. You don't understand. I can't leave him. Sure you can. No, I just... Despite myself, looking around the room, I asked for something. I just wish I didn't care. She cocked her head, and her thick lips tilted to the side in a frown. She didn't blink. Is that something you really want? I stared at her and nodded. It seemed insane that I was sitting there with a stranger in her home and I was admitting to her my deepest desire. The woman swallowed and sat back, leaning against her chair. Are you sure you wouldn't rather leave him? Her tone had a silky feel to it, and something that said, careful now. Because I think that's what you want. No, I just don't want to feel anything anymore. The large woman stared at me a while. Mm-hmm. I heard something rattle to my left, like glass upon glass, and the woman's eyes flicked to where the sound came from. Just like her, I turned to look, and was suddenly aware of the thing behind me I hadn't noticed. There was a large bookcase with shelves upon shelves. It had to have been ten feet tall. Instead of books inside of it, though, there were bottles. My eyes flicked amongst them, taking in the gold, emerald, sapphire, onyx, amethyst, clementine, opal, and ruby glasses. They shone in the light, bright and clear and promising. You look me in the eye and tell me that you want to be with this man. That you love him. And I'll give you what you're looking for. I turned back to her and didn't skip a beat. I love him. I want to be with him. (sighs) You're a little too good at that. She leaned forward and grasped the two sides of the chair. Her eyes drank me in, cocking an eyebrow. I can see the problem. Half of you is buried deep in that underbelly of consciousness, trying to get out. The other half is out here, trying to keep it down. When are you going to let the part of you in the underbelly speak? I opened my mouth, but nothing came out. I didn't understand what she was talking about. What? The woman blinked languidly and looked at the floor. 
I'll get you something. Without waiting for an answer, she stood. She stepped to the shelves from which the sound had emanated and ran her fingers along the multicolored bottles like they were piano keys until she arrived at a black one on the far right. She pulled this one down. From her far left, she grabbed a red bottle, the deepest red on those shelves, and retrieved it. She returned to her seat. She held up the black bottle. As she spoke, her eyebrows raised, and she shook her head back and forth just slightly. These are what you asked for. These pills will make you not care about anything done to you. Not ever. You take one a day, and you won't have a care in the world, no matter what happens to you. You won't feel a thing. They taste like licorice, like children's candy. I nodded and reached for them. She held them back. Hold on. I let my hand slip to my lap, and I waited. She held up the red bottle. As I said before, half of you is in a low-down place. These licorice pills will make sure all of you is there, good and buried. But that's not all I'm going to give you. These do something very different. Her eyes shined in the light fiercely, like a fire in the depths of her was burning strong. I'm going to provide it to you free of charge. It's something that will take that half of you that's in the lowdown that's been buried for so long it doesn't know what it is anymore and it will bring it back up I call it Dr. Catalyst even through the red glass of the bottle I could see the pills as though they were glowing one of them seemed to actually move as though clinking itself against the glass I swallowed and my throat clicked Why do you call it that? Because that's her name. She is the one who reverses things. Takes the ones buried deep and brings them up again. My eyebrows drew down and my mouth pursed. What are they made out of? She shrugged like it didn't matter. Sugar. Sugar? Sugar and the spell I cast over it. Breaks off a piece of Dr. Catalyst and puts it right in there. You see, there's plenty of her for everyone. She doesn't like stagnation and is more than happy to shake things up. Especially in the places where she is least expected. I stared at the woman and had a sinking feeling. Once again, I heard the sound of something tiny tapping ever so slightly against glass. I gripped my hand tight and felt the sting of the gauze in my wound. She leaned forward and smiled. Deep in the pit of her black pupil, I saw a speck of red. The pills reflected in her eye. 
You take one of these red pills, and she'll bring that buried part of you right on out to the surface. I'll just take the black bottle. She shook her head. I won't let you take one without the other. I felt too exhausted to argue with her, so I nodded. She smiled, slipped the two bottles of pills into my hands, and I put them in my jacket pockets. How much? She shook her head. Oh, nothing, Ella. It's on me tonight. I can see you're not in your right frame of mind. I bit my lip. We both stood there, eyeing each other. My tears, which were drying, tickled my cheeks. I opened my mouth to ask her how she knew my name, but decided against it. Thank you. Turning from her, I walked out of the room and the house. As I left, I wondered, had I been able to think... Had I been in my right mind, if I would have spoken to her at all. When I made it to the street, I immediately retrieved the black bottle from my pocket. I tapped one of the pills into my hand and popped it into my mouth. The woman stared at me from the house. As she watched me, I chewed. The pill burst between my teeth, and the taste of licorice filled my mouth. I swallowed turned from her and started towards home. An hour later, I made it back to the house. I stared at it, taking it in, and yet not. I saw it for what it was, my cage, but felt no tiredness, no anger, no fear. Our tiny two-bedroom home was impeccable on the outside. There were no weeds, the grass was trim, and the walkway to the front door was unobscured. It was late, so all of the shades were drawn, and there were no lights on inside. The rooms inside would be far different from the manicured outside. Inside, it was dark and musty, as though someone has been there chain-smoking cigarettes. Despite knowing all of this... I felt wonderful. I felt like I was ready to go for a run, climb a mountain, ski, bungee jump, skydive. I felt no exasperation, no fear, no need for anything. I was pure energy, beautifully automatic and numb. I could chew on my own blood, swallow, and ask for more. I was the granite on which things could throw themselves exactly the way I was supposed to be. I walked straight to the front door and quietly unlocked it. It was a tough door to open. It was always sticking because the house's foundation had shifted. Bracing myself, I pushed, gentle but firm. The hinges gave tiny screeches in the night. My ribs, which I was certain had been cracked when Mike had kicked me, barely gave a whimper. I paused waiting to see if Mike was awake or had woken. Nothing. Silence. I stepped in. When I shut and locked the door, instead of making my way to the bedroom where Mike was, 
I went straight to the kitchen and observed the scene. There were stacks of dirty bowls, silverware, and plates with old food cemented to the porcelain. The smell of them made me gag. I was surprised there weren't any maggots. The dishwasher did not work, so I set my keys down and walked to the sink and began to work. I washed each of them by hand, scrubbing them fiercely. In an hour and a half, everything was back in its place on the shelves. I looked at the time and discovered it was two in the morning, but I wasn't tired. Instead of going to bed, I took advantage of the nothingness I felt and searched for more to do. The coffee table was covered in old cigarette butts, which I promptly threw into the trash, and then I washed the coffee table with soap and water, the best I had, and made a mental note to purchase some sort of antibacterial cleaner in the morning. The floor, too, was covered in dirt, and I set the bucket of water on the tile, got to my knees, and started scrubbing. I cleaned both the floor of the kitchen and the living room until the white was three shades lighter than it used to be. It took all of two hours. The blinds were covered in dirt and nicotine from over the years, so I dampened a washcloth and cleaned each of them with soap and water. I could not get the yellow out, but I was able to get the dirt off. At some point during my cleaning the blinds, and the windows, and the curtain rods, Mike's alarm went off, and I heard him get up. He came into the living room. What are you doing? I didn't even glance at him. My fixation was soothing, and I let it tell me what to do. Cleaning. For just a moment, I felt a shiver of fear roll down my spine. And then it was gone. Nothing. I could feel him behind me, standing there and watching me for a long, long while. He came up to me and slipped his arms around me, pressing me to him. I barely felt a twinge in my ribs. You shouldn't worry about that now. I'm not worried. His arm lifted from me, and I felt him reach somewhere for something. When it was back in front of me, he was holding a black velvet case. I knew what it was. A gift. There was no way he could have gone out and purchased something between now and the night before. He must have already purchased the gift. He pre-purchased it. Open it. He left it in my hands, let go of me, and slowly walked to the back bedroom. I turned, watching him go. The black velvet case was weighty in my hands. I almost opened it. But the pills made me feel I didn't need to, and instead, I set it down on the freshly cleaned coffee table. While Mike got ready for work... I stopped my cleaning long enough to cook him an omelet with chives and bacon. I set this meal on the counter beside a cup of coffee without making any for myself because I wasn't hungry. And then I continued cleaning. Mike watched me while he ate, a quizzical expression hiding behind a blank stare. How do you like it? What? The necklace. It's beautiful. Thank you so much. He paused, chewing his food and washing it down with a swig of hot coffee. Then why aren't you wearing it? The words arrived readily, with barely any thought. I'm cleaning. I don't want to get it dirty. I turned and gave him my biggest smile. It was award-winning. 
He smiled back, but it did not reach his eyes. You're welcome. He pushed something forward, across the kitchen counter. It was red, leather, and flat, like a little booklet. It was my wallet. Mike had kept it from me for the past three weeks. There was a slight flutter in my stomach. You know I was only doing this for your own good, right? You know it was just to protect you. His words made no impression in me. We stared at one another, and I nodded my head. Again, I smiled at him. The smile was that of a museum guide. Of course, I know. I returned to scrubbing, one blind at a time. He left the wallet on the table and got up. Without saying anything else, he pulled his jacket on and left for work. It barely registered in me that he was gone or had ever been there. It was the best lack of sensation. By mid-morning, I was beginning to feel off. It wasn't horrible. I wasn't really feeling pain, but it was like the rainbow that overlaid everything was dimming. What lay beneath it, I didn't want to see. And so I reached into my jacket, which lay on the couch, and retrieved the black bottle. I unscrewed the lid, popped another pill into my mouth, and chewed. It cleaned and cleared me. My vision was crystalloid, my body unstoppable, the world injected with beauty. The hand that had been cut by the shard of glass felt fine, despite the blood that occasionally slipped out of the wound, blotting the wood or tile or plastic that I was cleaning, and then I would wipe it away. I went back to work. I vacuumed, started a load of laundry, and cleaned the dust from the bookshelf, side tables, bed, and bureau of drawers. I took a look at the bathroom and decided I needed to go to the store for cleaning supplies, and added to my mental list to pick out some paint for the backyard fence. Thinking on colors, I chose one quickly, something that reminded me of weightlessness. Baby blue. Before I left, I fell into a coughing fit that lasted about five minutes. I had to crawl to the kitchen, turn on the faucet, and drink from the tap before it would stop. When it finally relented, I felt as fine as if the coughing had never started, and I grabbed my purse, put my wallet back inside, and left for the store. We had no second car, so I walked there. The beauty of the morning radiated, and I enjoyed seeing the world. The trees, the light breeze, the birds, the cars. When I reached the store, I entered it and paused, feeling a well of pleasure at all the shelves. It was like I was staring at some grandiose beauty. I got the cleaning supplies and paint as I gawked, wide-eyed, at all the things inside and then went to pay. At the register, the clerk eyed me suspiciously, and I realized I had forgotten to put my sunglasses on to hide the black eye. I found I didn't care. It took me longer to get home, as the paint was heavy, but when I arrived, barely out of breath, I did not need to rest or drink or eat or take care of any aches or pains in my weak and pathetic body. I knew I had fallen in love. I looked down at the black set of pills and smiled. Whatever this woman had was magic, and she was an idiot for trying to convince me not to take them. They were mine, and I decided at that moment that I would never stop taking them. 
for the first time in a long time, I had found something that helped me. I had found something in which to trust. I fished into the other pocket of my jacket and brought out the red bottle. With barely a glance at it, I walked to the trash can in the kitchen, pressed down on the lever with my foot so that the top lifted, and dropped the bottle inside. The trash shut with a click. I turned from it, satisfied. In the afternoon, I painted the fence, finished the laundry, and cleaned the bathroom. By four in the afternoon, I realized I hadn't slept for over 24 hours, and I still felt energized and delighted. Smiling, I went down to the basement and started sifting through items that Mike and I no longer used. I grabbed four trash bags and began filling them with all the items that had collected dust over the years, including old photo albums, an Xbox, a pile of old clothes, books, candles, and tools. Most of the items I had previously been unable to emotionally part with. They had reminded me of people, places, and times that I longed for. Now, they appeared to me like litter on some foreign street. I loaded the bags up and then set them by the trash can. I put a second coat of paint on the fence. By then, it was five, almost time for Mike to come home, and I began cooking dinner with the little spaghetti sauce and noodles we had left, despite the fact I wasn't hungry. Again, I started to feel just a little off. So I went to my jacket, picked it up, put it on the coat rack, and then I began searching for one of the delicious black pills. That was when the front door opened, and Mike walked in. I looked up at him, a smile on my face. Welcome home, honey. He didn't answer. He stared at me, sheer anger in his icy blue eyes. He slammed the door behind him, and the three pictures of hearts on the wall to my left rattled. He had a bag of trash in his hand. He lifted it and shook it at me. He was mad at me, and only half of me seemed to register it. Part of me, deep inside, winced. But that was all. What are you doing throwing all of this away? Did I tell you you could do that? My heart seemed to jump, but I wasn't exactly sure why. Wasn't sure how to read its quickening pace. He lunged for me, and I jumped back, too quick for him. We both stood there, surprised at my swiftness. What do you think you're doing? He threw the bag against the wall, and two of the pictures fell off of it. The edges of them hit the floor, and the glass shattered. My stomach clenched. I stared at the shards on the floor and thought of the wine glass breaking beneath me as I landed. I felt pain in my palm. My eyebrows drew down. It was like I was trying to remember something but couldn't. The brilliant hue of the day dimmed. Inside, I began to feel sick. I reached for my coat. My pills. I withdrew the black bottle and began to open the lid. Before I could get it off, Mike smacked my hand. I lost my grip and the bottle went sailing through the air. Glass exploded against the wall. Everything went skittering across the linoleum. The black pills rolled like marbles let loose, littering the floor with shining licorice. I looked up at Mike, 
who was taking his coat off like a bull ready to lunch. There was a pill just to my right. Hoping that I could reach one before he reached me, I bent quickly, springing forward. Mike was quick. Too quick. He shoved me and I landed backwards, hard. Pain, more than I had expected, shot through my hands as I landed. My back and then my head slammed against the floor. For a moment, I saw tiny bright lights. Whatever golden rainbow hues had infused my world disappeared. When I righted myself, it was as though I had woken in an alternate universe. I sat in the midst of shards of glass and black pills, in front of a husband rolling up his sleeves. The entryway, even in the afternoon light, was dank and yellow. Staring into Mike's eyes, I remembered the night before. Had I not gone to the hospital? Had I walked, delirious, to Candom's street festival? Had I not gone to a dentist for my teeth? Had I just cleaned the house for almost 24 hours straight? Had I cooked Mike breakfast and dinner? Had I carried 15 pounds of paint cans for two miles back to the house? Had I thrown away my baby pictures? Had I not eaten? What was I doing? What was I doing? I looked up at Mike, who was standing in the doorway, an expression on his face that said he was ready to hit me, and I slid backwards. I got up and ran towards the bathroom. Oh, that's right. Do what you always do, Ella. Run! I slammed the door shut and locked it before he got there, and his body banged against the wood. The door jostled in its frame, threatening to open. No, no. Please, no, I, no. I stepped away from the door and looked down at my hands. My right hand was bloody, the cut open and dripping blood on the freshly cleaned tile. The image of myself in the mirror caught my attention and without the black pills to obscure my vision, I stared at myself, really saw myself for the first time. I looked like a young woman with mousy hair, a black eye, and feverish skin. Half of my front right tooth was missing. No wonder the clerk at the store had stared. Ella! How had I ended up here? My mind wandered back to the night before. Mike and I had fought over my not having the house clean for him. That wasn't quite right, though. It wasn't just that night. It was every night. In all our conversations, I always carefully formed my sentences to throw him off track, to placate him so he would not lash out. It never worked. One way or another, there was always something wrong. We were always right back where we started. This night, though, was worse. I had always been able to run out the front or back door. Now, I was buried deep inside the house. There was no way I was going to get past Mike. If he didn't knock down the door, he would wait for me. Hopelessness made me shake. 
My eyes gushed tears, and I pushed my hair from my face. My heart was beating at a frantic pace. I swallowed, not knowing what to do, just knowing that no matter what, I didn't want to face Mike anymore. Whatever it took, I wanted to get away from him forever. An image of the straight razor in the cabinet behind me came to mind. I bit my lip, unable to stop from crying. Mike jiggled the door handle again and then banged against the door hard enough for me to jump. I looked at the door and then jumped again. Not because of Mike. Because something in the room had drastically shifted. The bathroom wasn't all yellow anymore. A red bottle of pills sat on the counter, inches from me. I stared at them, forgetting Mike for a moment. My breath stopped. A scream threatened to break free. I had put those pills in the trash. Mike slammed against the door so hard that it budged a few centimeters, the bolt smashing part of the way through its wooden frame. I jumped to my feet and hopped into the bathtub before I could even think. He continued to ram himself against the door, and as he did, the pictures on the walls of the bathroom shook and fell. The red bottle toppled to the floor. It rolled itself across the linoleum towards me, ending at the edge of the bathtub. I stared down at it, fear slamming into my heart just as heavily as Mike slammed into the door. He was going to break through at any moment. I didn't know what else to do. Something in me made me bend to the bottle, pick it up, and open it. I poured the red pills into my mouth, gulping as many as I could. That's when the door's frame broke. Mike stared at me, his eyes wild with rage. He stalked into the room, reaching for me, when from my own lips came the smallest whisper. It was barely audible, but when I spoke, I saw my breath stream red out in front of me, as though steam or smoke was escaping. puff of smoke disappeared into the air right in front of Mike's face. He stopped dead in his tracks. It did not feel like I was speaking the words, but rather that they came from something foreign, deep inside of me. With them arrived a sense of years of pent-up energy loosed. I trembled at the sensation of something not me speaking, and I shivered at the sight of the smoke. My mouth dropped. My eyes welled. As though something had thrown a switch on inside, I became instantaneously aware. I stared straight through Mike, knowing he was not a thing to be feared. A swift swing to the right part of the head with the right object, and he'd be down like an anvil. I knew more than this, though. I sensed all of the creatures on all the earth that were buried inside themselves, and I yearned to raise them up, to bring them to the surface. I craved to bring everything out into the open, 
have it all on the table. I thirsted to dig down, rattle the bones, pull it all up by the roots. My back straightened. There was intense pain in my body, but it was not an old pain. It was the pain of wounds healing. Coming back to myself and the room, I met Mike's eyes. There was only one cure for a man like him. Only one cure in the world. It was Dr. Catalyst. I stepped out of the tub. Before I could blink, Mike had me by the throat and pushed me against the wall, holding me there. Spittle flew from his lips, hitting my eyes. He roared at me that I was to never throw anything away again without his permission. And I stared at him, at this man who had beaten me and betrayed me, belittled me and embarrassed me, and I owned the beating and betraying, belittling and embarrassing. I smiled. I grinned. Mike's expression of anger shifted to fear. It was as though I had stabbed him instead of smiled. He jerked away from me. I began to tell him that he wasn't going to beat me anymore, but what arrived was... Here comes Dr. Catalyst. The words unraveled with that same steam, that red smoke, and Mike screamed and jumped away from me. He took a step back, as though trying to turn and run, but as he did, his foot got caught on the rug beneath him, and he fell. He was backing away from me, crawling across the floor. As I stared at him, I stretched my reptilian self out. Oh, it's so nice to be in this body. This aching, tired body. I grinned again and took in the man more fully this time. What do you think you're doing, Mike? Just who do you think you are? More importantly, can you guess who I am? <laughs> I laughed and shook my head like a dog throwing off water. I bet you can't. I am deep and strong, more than you have ever known. I am what is buried beneath the Ella you know. His eyes were wide, and he crawled from me as I stepped forward. He tried to turn to clamber away, but I grabbed his ankle, and with the strength of three mics, I pulled him. He slid across the floor, stopping beneath me. I turned him around and clasped his face. I brought it close to mine, and then I slammed his head against the tile, just as hard as he had done to me countless times. He was out. When he woke, his eyes lifted half open. When he saw me, they went wide. He noticed the chair he was sitting in and gripped its arms hard. I was sitting in my own chair, the back of it in front of me, and I was leaning against it, my head against my arms. A sheen of sweat broke out across his forehead. He straightened himself. What do you want from me? 
I smiled and shrugged. It should have been obvious. I think it's time we had a discussion about what you've been doing to my body and soul, about what your punishments should be. Waves of fear broke across his face. He had never shown such anxiety. I think you deserve only the very, very best. My full attention. Mike's breath shortened. The tendons on each side of his face popped out as he gritted his teeth. I had mine to take hold of the cast iron pan sitting on the floor next to me and charge straight at him. But there was a strange sound in the room. It arrived from behind me, and I turned. A familiar, small red bottle rolled itself out of the bathroom. It stopped just beyond the doorway in the hallway light. My eyebrows drew down, and my breathing stopped as I stared at the bottle, uncomprehending. The pills inside seemed to be glowing, pulsing, like they had a heartbeat. Is that what you've been taking? I looked back at him, and he was staring at the bottle as though he had never seen anything so alarming. I smiled at him as he returned his gaze to me. Again, my smile seemed to unsettle him. To my lack of surprise, Mike jumped out of the chair and distanced himself from me. I stood, and my hand reached down, until I did find the handle of the freshly cleaned and sealed cast iron pan. I stood, pan in hand, staring at him, and he glared at me. I tilted my head, wondering when he was going to attack. He gazed at me like a hunter cornered, his jaw clenching and unclenching. He walked to my right, so I walked to my left, and we slowly made a circle, remaining at opposite ends. What is wrong with you? What a question. Nothing is wrong with me. Everything is finally right. He shook his head. No, you're not Ella. You're something else. Stopping, I stood directly in front of him and cocked my head. <laughs> How would you know? It's not like you ever really paid attention to what I am. I'm the real Ella. The one you never allowed me to be. The one you've never known. Again, he shook his head. No. There's something demonic about you. How would you know the difference between possession and the real deal? They would look the same to you. He swallowed, and his throat made a clicking sound as he motioned to the bottle. You took something, didn't you? Some sort of drug. What does it matter? You're not allowed to do that. He pointed his hand at me. As soon as he did it, though, he took a step back, as though he regretted it. I looked him up and down. <laughs> I laughed. My laugh reached the ceiling and the corners of the room. It crawled out of the cracks in the walls and out into the night sky. It was large and deep and full of all the voice that was buried in me for the prior two years. He stared at me, 
and I could not stop laughing. My eyes shut, and I couldn't shut off the sound that came out. It was growing louder and louder. Mike ran at me, into me, and pushed me to the ground. I still couldn't stop laughing. I felt his hands around my throat, and though he squeezed, I didn't stop breathing, and I didn't stop laughing. Horror came over his face. Horror that he could not stop me from laughing at him. He jerked his head, looking behind himself at the pills on the floor. Two can play at this game. He was more knowing than he had ever been. He rushed to the floor and grabbed the bottle. I pushed myself to my feet and lunged at him, but he dodged me. He bolted to the corner of the room, and before I could get to him, he unscrewed the bottle. He downed the contents like I had, a whole mouthful of glowing red pills crunching between his teeth. They glowed as they slid down his throat. My breath stopped, and I took a few steps back. The old fear returned. Fear that whatever had changed inside of me was about to change inside of him. As I stared into his eyes, something in them flashed. He stopped cowering. His eyes distanced, and his body straightened up on its own, like a puppet being picked up by the tip of its head. Crimson steam shot from his mouth. Here comes Dr. Catalyst! His eyes, which were only ever all-knowing and cruel before, looked doubtful. As I watched him, Mike transformed. He appeared ready to cry. He stared through me and struggled this way and that, as though trying to throw something off of him that can't be thrown off because it is too deep inside. He gritted his teeth, the stream of steam coming from his mouth getting thicker, and I readied myself. Whatever got unearthed, I would fight it. I was ready to fight him, no matter how strong he was. That was who I was. The Ella beneath the Ella. Just as I had shed my layers and got to the heart, he was about to, and I was prepared. As I watched him, he screamed. He clawed at himself. He screeched at the top of his lungs. Here comes Dr. Catalyst! The steam came flowing out of his mouth like an engine about to blow. He doubled over, collapsed, and before my very eyes, he shrank. It wasn't a physical shrinking, but it registered as physical. All the nooks and crannies of him drew in. He was feeble, frail. He cried, slipping to the floor in the fetal position, wrapping his arms around his legs, as though to keep the rest of the world out, as though to keep me out. He wouldn't look at me. He was a child. He was a child. I bent down to him, confused. I was ready for the showdown, finally ready to go fist to fist, to go to the end, wherever it might lead. As I bent to him, I accidentally brushed his forehead with my knee, and he shrieked and quaked. 
He was not up for a fight. I felt myself smile. I crawled as close to him as I could, and I leaned against the man who beat me, embarrassed me, humiliated me, hurt me. I stared at the man turned inside out, and I whispered in his ear, That's what I thought. for joining us on our journey down the lost highway. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and for being a supportive Season Pass member. As the darkness fades, it feels like you're going to dream This audio production is copyright 2020 by Creative Reason Media, Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.